episode 48 of the Movie Brats podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I am fully vaccinated, and I went to Atlanta this past weekend, uh, and I saw seven films in a theater in three days, and I hadn't been since the last October, and I caught up with four of the Best Picture nominees at the Oscars, as well as seeing other films such as Godzilla vs. Kong. <laughs> but it was really good. It was really good to go back to a movie theater, even though a lot of the, basically all the screenings only had like a couple of people in it or, you know, hard, no pack theaters these days. <laughs> Godzilla v. Kong with a muted crowd reaction. <laughs> right. That's one you can imagine would be best with like an absolutely full crowd. Right. But uh, I mean, the few times you've been back in recent weeks, there's mm-hmm. been hardly anyone in the theater for you. True, right? Yeah, barely anybody. I think the most was I think there were seven when I saw the father, which was like, whoa, this is getting up there. <laughs> there was like more people in the cat and the, theater the cast. The film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think we're going to talk about some of those uh, movies that you saw over the weekend. We're going to be sort of touching on what we've missed out on sort of the 2020 or what is this, 2020 or 2021 Academy Awards? Well, that's the weird thing is that, uh, you know, the technical, the technicality when people do their top 10 list is that what films come out each year, calendar year in the in the country. Uh-huh. So like in the United States, a film comes out and, you know, for example, 1917 might come out in New York and L.A. at, at the very end of December, but then it opens nationwide in January. But it's still a film 2019 film mm-hmm. but the weird thing is with the extended oscars i think nomadland and the father there's some of these movies that technically came out in 2021 but they're considered so when people do their top 10 list <laughs> I, everyone's been doing like whatever like the oscar consideration uh-huh. is but it's like i don't know like godzilla versus kong is a 2021 it's movie. certainly 2021 yeah so i guess but we then, call it the 20 slash 21 oscars <laughs> Right. Well, it's always too that you know the there's the for example there's 2019 films mm-hmm. win Oscars in 2020. Mm-hmm. So it's always the next year, <laughs> but uh, it's like if you type in on Wikipedia like the uh, 2008 Oscars, it'll say, "Do you want the films that came out in 2008 or the when the ceremony was in 2008?" Well, they go by like the Super Bowl. They do it by the edition, so they call it the 93rd Academy Awards. Is the upcoming one right? So that the 93rd, it means the films that came out in 2020 for the most part. And like most, almost everything at least premiered at it. I mean, I think everything at least premiered at a film festival in 2020. The one I would not sure about is The Father. Nomadland definitely premiered at Venice in 2020. Right. And I played at the New York <laughs> Film Festival. Yeah. and But didn't it get a theatrical release? Uh, in 2021. Yeah. Right. And I, or it might have gotten a very brief one at the end of the year, but it's open like in multiple theaters. Yes. For, to it might stay. have been limited in 2020. Yeah. It's all messed up. You know, because <laughs> this you know, is going to be just, the weirdest Oscars ever just because like so few movies came out. So, I mean, some came out such a long time ago. I know. Uh, well, I hope that at least Daniel Kaluuya has his mic working this time when he wins Best Supporting Actor. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, it's just because at the Golden Globes, he was talking for like a minute and Laura Dern had to go, we're having obviously technical difficulties. Um, but yeah, I, the, at first they said they weren't even going to have any people on Zoom, but they think some were like, yeah, well, I'm not going to travel because uh-huh. of I've got my vaccination or the country where I'm in. So I think they're going to be you know, try to have uh, as many people in person as possible, but they're, 
I think they're going to have to have some Zoom activity. Well, it's going to be interesting. It's almost just a week away. What is it? Ten days at this point. Yeah, I I mean, it's just kind of I I mean, I, I'm really glad to go back to the movie theater, but it just felt like I don't know it just it, it felt like I, I didn't feel the motivation to see these movies at home. I was really glad to wait to see them in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are movies I wanted to see, but um, there weren't. So, it's like I, I, I wasn't so excited that I felt like, oh, I had to watch it the second it became streaming. I, I was like, I can wait for this in the theater. <laughs> That's how you felt, right? Oh, definitely. The only one yeah. that was like that was Mank, which was like, I need to see this the day it comes out. I'm not going to wait however many months to see it in the theater to, to see this one. So. Right. So uh, which one are we going to talk about first? We're well, going to focus on films. the best actress sort of race and also two movies nominated for best picture. We're going to start off with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which came out uh, the earliest. It came out November 25th, 2020 on Netflix. Directed by George C. Wolfe, who had done The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks and Knights in Rodante. Had you seen any of his movies before this? No, but I know that he certainly has directed a lot in theater. He's known, I think, more as a theater director, mm-hmm. but uh, he's a very acclaimed theater director. Starring Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman, Boseman both nominated for Best Actress and Best Actor, respectively. Uh, and this won is... the SAG Awards in both categories recently. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, uh, this was the first SAGs ever where all four acting wins were by people that were not white. Because who was supporting those, actress? Uh, the grandmother from Minari. Oh, okay. So not all African American. Daniel Kaluuya won supporting uh-huh. for Judas, but uh, all four of the winners were non-white, which was you know cool. How about that? Yeah. This is based on a play. I think it came out in the '80s called Ma Rainey's August Black Wilson. Bottom. August Wilson. Yeah, August yeah. Wilson, because uh, Denzel Washington's a producer on the film, and he had previously. Uh, directed fences. and starred in Fences. So yeah. this is the second he's planning on doing. There's a whole series that August Wilson wrote of plays. I think it's like one for each decade of the 20th century. And Washington plans on being involved, at least as a producer, on wow. making uh, eight more films. This one, I guess, is concerned with the 20s, specifically 1920s Chicago, and is about Ma Rainey, an influential blues singer. And the movie is sort of a drama dramatization of a recording session in a white owned studio in uh, 1920s Chicago. That was sort of an element I did not expect how it sort of starts off with uh, a Ma Rainey performance. And I think it's Mississippi or Alabama. And then it's the credits sort of like is about the sort of black migration up to the north, which I didn't really expect before I watched this movie. That it would be about sort of the great migration in the early well, 20th century. I listened to an interview that the director did with Elvis Mitchell, you know, the black film critic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was talking about how the opening of the film for the first minute or so, you think that it might be some lynching or some horrible racial violence that will happen. Oh, it's two guys children. running through the woods. Yeah. It's two young people running through the woods and it's dark and kind of ominous. But mm-hmm. then you see that it's actually a gathering place of African-Americans to see Ma Rainey perform. And it's this place of sanctuary and safety. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be out in the world, you know, in town nearby, there may be violence and, uh, you know, racial strife that they could face. But there is this, you know, celebration of black talent. Mm-hmm. And then what's so interesting about the film is that they go to this <laughs> white recording studio and Ma Rainey is putting her foot down and being a diva. Mm-hmm. But she points out that, anyone else, any other white person could get away with doing this. And they just seem very shocked uh-huh. by the fact that this 
large, brash, bisexual black woman is doing it. Uh, <laughs> well, there's an interesting part before that, where she before she gets to the studio, where she's staying at, I guess it's like a upper class African American hotel, and sort of all the other patrons there are like looking at her sideways as she's walking out, and like her fancy fur coat with her two attendants. So it's sort of like a I don't know if that's like a North v. South or upper class versus new money sort of thing, but I thought that was sort of interesting that Ma Rainey was like being discriminated not only by the white recording people, but also sort of the upper class black elite of Chicago. Um, because, you know, she's got like these stained black teeth and she like she's obviously has a lot of money, but she wears sort of like gaudy style. It's very like sort of in your face that she has money. Um, but it was an interesting. Is it a character. black hotel though? I thought it was like. All I the remember white it being at a hotel. lot of black patrons. I couldn't imagine that it would be an integrated hotel in the 1920s. But, well, I know that uh, one. Of, I mean, to me, the best thing about the film is, uh, well, the performances in general. But Viola Davis is just. It, it reminds you that she is one of our absolute greatest living actresses. I mean, she completely commits to the role. She said in interviews that she was hesitant at first to take this role. She didn't feel like she could necessarily do this. I mean, do it's the one singing where, aspect yes, of it. She, yeah, she doesn't sing in the film. But oh, really? Uh, she could have no, fooled uh, me. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, you. I mean, it's one where like you gain the weight, and you uh-huh. like you look, uh, fr- you know, don't look very good. But she, you know, she's not attractive in the film. She's sweaty and large, but yes. she's just so commanding in the film. Oh she yeah, she is just. She's uh, the movie is pretty short. It's only like ninety five minutes uh-huh. or so. Uh, but she uh, and you could argue almost that it's funny that um, you know, she won best supporting actress for Fences. And really, she should have been best lead actress in this film. She's nominated for best actress, and you could argue she really should have been nominated for best supporting actress. But what you know, regardless, she is just, I think, the strongest aspect of this film. She just is just so commanding in the film. It's it's one of those where she's showy, and you know, she gains the weight, and there's all this kind of surface stuff. Yes, but she really creates the character too. It doesn't feel like it's just the teeth and wig and the gaining the weight. Like it's such a, it's a very lived in performance. Like she carries her history with her. Um, what was I, I was about to say something about, uh, yeah. How many times has she been nominated for best actress now? Is this her? She is now the most, she is the most nominated black actress because she's nominated for doubt, the help fences. Mm -hmm. I think this is her fourth and she's won once. And an actress who wasn't really, who sort of got a late start, like yeah, I, the I was, earliest role I remember her being in is like out of sight. She plays a very small supporting role. Yeah, I, I, we were talking right before we got on about Steven Soderbergh, and she's actually in a number of his movies. I think she might be in Traffic also, but she's okay. one of those that it's like it reminds me too of Octavia Spencer. Like you look like, oh yeah, she was in uh, Being John Malkovich and Bad Santa and Drag Me to Hell, and uh-huh. then she's like three time Oscar nominee and Oscar <laughs> yeah. winner. You know, they kind of. Uh, pay their dues and like her these little bit roles supporting characters playing a lot of nurses mm-hmm. you know and playing uh you know background you know very small roles clerks Moms. and then they yeah it's like even in doubt you know it's like one of the shortest she's only know, in one like one scene i think right she's like the beatrice Strait of african-american uh-huh. actresses you know like beatrice Strait, i think has the record for the shortest time ever to win an oscar she's in the movie like five minutes oh was that for um, uh for network yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's literally just like one Viola short Davis. scene. <laughs> but I like right, so yeah, notably like was... uh, short performance Oscar winner that the performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom sort of reminds me of is Judy Dench in uh, Shakespeare in Love. 
how she's oh, yeah. not in it for very often, but she creates such a huge sort of impression on the movie that that's sort of the memory you take from it is this person who is oh, not barely in it, but not nearly in it as much as uh, Chadwick Boseman, who is very much the sort of showy central role. He gets like multiple pretty long monologues. There's one sort of about like uh, what happened to his parents. There's like a traumatic incident in his childhood, which is like a five minute monologue. Um, so it's very, very showy. That's one thing we're going to talk about the father, I think next week, which is also an adaptation of a play, but Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, even like the dialogue between the band members at the beginning felt, you know, how sort of plays are very wordy and sometimes people like say things that you were like, oh, this is the author speaking. This isn't this character speaking. A lot of the sort of dialogue reminded me of that sort of aspect of plays where it's very much the writer's medium and it's like the writer trying to say something. So um, in that way, I didn't find it sort of as realistic as the father, which we'll talk about next week. But did you sort of get that sense from it that it was like almost a little too wordy at times? Well, yeah, but I think that there's a joy in listening to the back and forth, the mm-hmm. the conversations they have. It's like, you know, we've talked before, like you don't go into a Billy Wilder or Preston Sturgis film or <laughs> yeah. a network. You don't watch it going, oh, they're not people don't really talk exactly like this. You no, know, yeah. there's part of the art of it is watching people give you know there's a theatricality to the characters even yes you know, Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis are performers and they are even amongst themselves I think somewhat putting on a performance you know they're trying to put yes. themselves forward to uh you know especially within this white recording studio to better their careers I mean what's interesting is the difference between Viola Davis's character Ma Rainey and Chadwick Boseman, where she is very hesitant to put her voice on record because uh-huh. there's this whole idea that if she commits it to, you know, this, you know, media, you know, this, this, you know, record that it can be sold and it gets out of her hand. Yes. When she sings live like she does at the beginning of the film in that tent uh-huh. in the middle of the woods. That's pure. She owns but, the performance. Right. And, you know, when Chadwick Boseman, he is, you know, he's willing to sell his stuff. He wants it to go out into the world. But you see the kind of repercussions of that when he uh, is offered, you know, you know, he he offers his songs and they take one of his and they have the white band play. it. Yeah, that's you how know, the movie ends is Chadwick Boseman writes this song that I think he was requested to write by the producers with the sense that I got. And then the guy's like, no, it's just not going to play. And then the movie sort of closes out with this white guy, just totally soulless, singing Chadwick Boseman's song, which was a really sort of crushing ending because you're so, I mean, that's such a sort of, it's not a trope, but that's like something that was very much part of 20th century America. Like Pat Boone built his career off of the songs of black people and Elvis Presley to a certain extent. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, both actors nominated for lead oscars and we were talking about we don't want to be grim but um i we're not sure that chadwick boseman would be the front runner to win best actor if Mm -hmm. he had not tragically passed away i think very likely he would have been nominated Mm -hmm. but um i think that the nomination is certainly earned but uh for my money viola davis is uh the real steen siller in this film Mm -hmm. i mean she uh, she's just incredible in the film and chadwick boseman uh, i feel bad the only other movie I've actually seen of his is Black Panther. I've missed a lot of those uh, sort of biopics. Yeah. Get up. He's, he's really I, I, good in Get Up. He does a very convincing James Brown. 
Yeah. One of the things that's tragic about his life being cut so short is that um, I could imagine that, you know, he started his career. I, I think that a lot of black actors face this issue of like they do movies like The Help and the Jackie Robinsons. You know, they, they do the historical uh, film set in the 50s and 60s or slavery movies. And then uh, you would you you would hope that they would get to do just character roles. Mm -hmm you know, or leading man, leading w uh, women roles where it's just not like, oh, we're having to do a movie that's focused so much on race or the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. And you imagine Chadwick Boseman, you know, what if he had, you know, lived longer? Oh, and he'd gotten so many possibilities. Right. Action star, like leading man yeah. in the sort of like James Bond type yeah. franchise. I mean, he did get action, you know, with Black Panther, but it's just, uh, it's it, the idea of what he could have uh, what he could have gone on to do, the directors, oh, the yeah. roles he could have done. But this is one of, I mean, I shouldn't say because I've only seen Black Panther, but it's such a strong performance. Well, I mean, he's a very good physical performer. It's sort of the use of his body. He does it sort of really interesting yeah. ways in this movie. And another sort of, I think we'll probably move on from this in a second, but to just note the uh, supporting performances by the band members, I thought were really excellent. Uh, Coleman Domingo, who plays like the bass player, I had seen him previously in... Uh, if Beale Street could talk, where he plays the the female main character's father, and he was really good in that, so it's good to see him in really interesting supporting roles because uh, he's impressed me in everything I've seen him in. Um, right, and and also you know just to go back for a second, you're talking about the physicality of Chadwick Boseman's performance. Part of the tragedy is watching it knowing that he died and was so sick oh, yeah. probably when he was making the film. How electric and alive he is in the movie, oh, yeah. and knowing how little he had left to live and he knew that yes and no one else did i mean i don't know uh i haven't really heard if like i don't even think the directors necessarily knew. like spike lee i don't think knew he, mm -hmm. he said that you know i knew he didn't look too good but mm -hmm. i didn't question him it was you know a personal thing i didn't want to intrude but mm -hmm. um yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a pretty powerful film and i think that the father does it even better but i do think that ma rainey uses the limited uh you know, the space. stage space. Yeah. Yeah. It, use, it uses that. Particularly well. the I band the... room where they right. like have the lockers and everything. And they've got this very charged at sometimes semi-violent, but definitely a lot of like male strutting and their sort of relation to each other, particularly right. uh, Chadwick Boseman's character, who's like trying to prove himself around these more seasoned sort of band members who have accepted being uh, sort of the background. And Chadwick Boseman very much wants to be the star. And right. there, yeah, there's some cool elements going on in it. I imagine it'd yeah. be really electric on stage. Uh, right. And um, I was going to say that two interviews I recommend with the director, uh, I mentioned already Elvis Mitchell interviewed him on his podcast. And also the DGA has this podcast where they have directors interviewing directors. Mm -hmm. They have him being interviewed by Bill Condon, who directed Gods and Monsters and Dreamgirls and Kinsey. Oh. And they have a really interesting discussion. A lot of it is focused on how he – uh, and the screenwriter altered the play, you mm -hmm. know, how they brought it. You know, there's uh, these differences between, for example, Ma Rainey does not show up in the play for like a long time. Until like the last and, act, I think, is what yeah, I read. And in this film, you know, they bring her, she's like in the first scene of the movie mm -hmm. and she comes into it and she's such a presence. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's on Netflix. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, nominated for best uh, lead actor and actress, among others. In a very and big the, year for Netflix. Yeah, and I think it is the oldest Oscar nominee ever 
the costume designer is like 89 or 90 years old. Holy she shit. Beat, beat Anya Sparda for being nominated for Faces Places. Oh, wow. Um, so interesting trivia. So what's the second one we're going to talk so about? So the next one is, I don't know if she's the favorite, but she's definitely very much up there for winning Best Actress, is Promising Young Woman, the starring Carrie Mulligan, uh, directed by Emerald Fennell in her directorial her debut, too. written by her as well. She was also nominated for Original Screenplay and Best Director, I think, Emerald Fennell, who I right. think is best known for showrunning uh, Killing Eve Season 2. And right. other than that, she's got some acting appearances in like Albert Knobs. And I think she was in the most recent season of The Crown or maybe the next season yeah. of The Crown. She's playing Camilla Parker. <laughs> Camilla Parker Bowles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Starring Carrie Mulligan and Bo Burnham, uh, who was the director of, uh, what was the one with the, about the eighth teenager? grade? Eighth grade, that's it. Yeah. Which was one of my favorite movies of a couple years ago. Um, Carrie Mulligan plays a woman who hunts down. Uh, nice guys they call themselves who take advantage of drunk girls at bars and then confronts them when they try to take advantage of her and uh, we sort of discover about her past trauma as she works in a coffee shop by day and hunts these nice guys by night putting on various disguises Um, it opens up with her sort of like catching uh, Adam Brody's character sort of in the act of like being the nice guy taking this drunk girl home and uh was a really arresting opening scene. Uh, it premiered originally at Sundance, uh, January twenty fifth, twenty twenty, and then was released wide December twenty fifth, twenty twenty. A Metacritic score of seventy three and a Rotten Tomatoes score of ninety. Uh, you saw this this weekend in theaters, right? Right. I was going to mention that Emerald Fennell has talked in interviews about the. Uh, genesis of this film is this opening scene basically a uh young woman being like almost you know she's being falling down drunk Mm -hmm. and a guy quote-unquote nice guy takes her home and he starts taking her clothes off and starts you know becoming you know wanting to be sexual with her and kissing her and having her lying down on the bed and and drunkenly saying what are you doing what are you doing and then all of a sudden sitting up in stone cold sober saying (laughs) what are you doing and the guy's like ah yeah. And th- she said that was the genesis of the film, that idea. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, it's a mix. It's a genre mashup. Uh, certainly it's a dark comedy. It's a thriller. It's a sort of a revenge parable. thriller. Yeah. But we don't yeah. really and know it, what the revenge is until about halfway through the movie. Right. Yeah. It's it's very smart and it's twisty and turny and it has a great cast. I mean, it has a lot of. Uh, a lot of elements. familiar faces like uh, McLovin. Comedic. Yeah, a lot of comedic faces playing, you know, like these supposedly nice guys, you know, these funny, nice guys, but they're, you know, doing Sam Richardson, things. who I, I like from uh, <laughs> Detroiters and some other stuff. He was in Veep. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Max Greenfield from New Girl, mm-hmm. who just looks like he's probably a really decent person in real life, but he looks like the biggish, like, douchey <laughs> fat guy ever. <laughs> he just sort of punched him in the face. Oh, yeah. He has the most punchable face ever. And then the parents, uh, incredible casting. You have Jennifer Coolidge mm-hmm. and Clancy Brown, who are it's very the straight good. faced father. Right. And, <laughs> and the sort uh, of over the top mother. Yeah, you have Laverne Cox and Connie Britton showing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a really uh, well-cast movie. And the writer-director, 
uh, has a cameo. Did you recognize who she is? Yeah, she does the like blowjob lifts YouTube video, which I thought was like one of the great director cameos of recent oh, years. Yeah, it's up there with Quentin Tarantino. It's it's up there with uh, uh, Martin Scorsese and Taxi Driver playing the horribly racist <laughs> guy. It's like you give yourself the you know uh, a, a loaded role like that, I guess. Exactly. The blowjob tutorial. But yeah, um, I I I'm glad I went into this movie not knowing much besides what the trailer shows mm-hmm. that it make it has some really shocking twists and turns. And oh yeah. I, I, what I like so much about the movie is that I think especially dumb men, some dumb men would see this movie and go, Oh, well, well yeah, what happened, you know, to her is horrible, but you know, what she does in the film is totally not justified. I mean, she's a psychopath. Mm-hmm. The movie doesn't, say that what she's doing is quote-unquote right or justified it's a character portrait of this deeply damaged woman yes. this traumatized woman what well, sort and of what shows what she does as part of like what's keeping her back in life like she can't sort of abandon the past there's a really good scene with her and molly shannon sort of talking about like that sort of situation it definitely doesn't make what she's seeming like is like a good thing but it definitely makes like you understand that the men are like bad guys Oh, yeah. And I think that uh, one of the things that's most intriguing about the film is the moral thorniness of it, Mm -hmm. where you you feel a certain way about something for a scene or two, Mm -hmm. and then more information is revealed. And you go, okay, that changes. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then it goes in the opposite direction. Like you feel a certain way about a character uh-huh. and then something's revealed and you're like, oh, this person's scum. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, the movie constantly pulls the rug out from under you. And I agree that um, one of the things that I think is the strongest about the film is Carrie Mulligan's performance mm-hmm. because if an actress of that caliber was not anchoring this movie, it could, uh, the genre mashup, the tonal shifts lose believability to a certain extent also right and the movie is um you know it's this interesting mix i mean i was listening to an interview just recently with the writer director and she was saying that um thrillers often have this certain look Mm -hmm. and this film is full of like candy floss (laughs) and that it's this interesting mix of subject matter but with dark comedy mm-hmm. and the use of songs is really inspired in the film. <laughs> yeah, there's a really good Paris Hilton song drop. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I do think that the film is a little bit flashy in its camera work and it's like a very centered framing at times. But you know what? It's a directorial debut. Yes. You know, the Coen brothers were very flashy with Blood Simple. And there's the long history of people, you know, really making you notice their first feature so i i you know it, there are times in the movie where i was a little bit like okay you're 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 kind of making us notice this is a movie mm-hmm. but that can be forgiven especially i think with the feature debut oh definitely and i mean uh more than almost any other best picture nominee i thought this was like really entertaining and gripping as a thriller which you don't necessarily expect from best picture nominees which are usually sort of uh you know prestige cinema but this, in a lot of ways, was like a genre movie that was actually really fun, and but was about a topic that's very timely and actually very important, and makes you have a sort of different understanding of the sort of like innocent until proven guilty nature of a lot of these cases. It's a little bit more inter- overtly entertaining than Nomadland. <laughs> yes, or even Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yeah, or- I, yeah, I mean, and and it manages to be very serious about its subject matter but also 
uh, entertaining and kind of irreverent at times. This is a real tightrope to walk. Right. And I do think that Carrie Mulligan, uh, I mean, I always thought she was terrific. I mean, did you ever see Wildlife from a few years ago? No, I didn't. That was uh, the directorial debut of, uh, what's his name? Uh, Paul Dano. Paul Dano, yeah. Yeah, it was written by uh, with him and his wife, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, that's a really strong film. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and it's interesting. She uh, in education was nominated like a decade ago. Yeah, um, and she's back. Um, you Has know, it been in a ton of movies? Uh, I mean, she uh, she uh, she Suffragette, makes her Mudbound, Shame. You like yeah. a lot, right? Yes, yeah. but that was like yeah. ten years ago. Yeah, Drive too. But yeah, she had a she big a... start, like right after an education. She's in Never Let Me Go, and then the Wall Street sequel, Drive and Shame, and then The Great Gatsby, and then it's a little more spread out. But right. Probably one of our best current working actors. I mean, if you ask me. But she just oh, doesn't yes. get many chances to remind us because <laughs> she's in movies like I did. I I didn't see The Dig, or No Suffragette. So. No Suffragette seems like real Oscar bait. Yes. <laughs> in the, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this promising young woman is a really good example. I'm actually kind of surprised. Well, I was saying a really good example of something having uh, important subject matter, but doing it in a very entertaining way. I, I am kind of surprised that it's been so uh, nominated at the Oscars. Like, I'm not shocked she's nominated, but like for it to be nominated for Best Picture and Director and Actress, yeah. I mean, it's sort of like for, Universal uh, screenplay. Acclaim. Well, no, it's a very divisive film. No, but I mean by the Oscars, That's, it's. Well, at least being nominated, but yes. I think that what's so interesting is that a movie that's this kind of uh, overtly entertaining and uh, the and the director has talked about in interviews, like a lot of people that see things on the surface as being candy colored and glossy and like being, you know, about women with the pink. It's like they go, oh, well, that's not serious. Yeah. But the movie it manages to both be entertaining and glossy, but it's it has a real, you know, vicious to it and has a really harrowing climax that at yeah, some well, point we is uncomfortable it. to watch i'll just say that much but but then yeah, a really a little... good ending i thought right I, I sometimes i get disappointed when i read things i mean i, I don't quite understand i don't want to give it away mm-hmm. but the, it, even the mpaa rating says for strong violence and i was expecting it to get like tarantino yeah. <laughs> and like there's a really um traumatic violent scene that happens in the movie but it's more disturbing than violent. Yeah. Yeah. I was expecting it to like get into like uh, blood know. splattering on the walls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, well, what's what's interesting, too, is that you don't know entirely what she does to the men. Yes. All the time. Well, there's and sort of know- play on that joke where after the first guy, she like leaves him and then there's like red all over her suit. And but she's eating like a hot dog. that's dripping ketchup. So right. for a and second, also- you think like, oh, my God, did she murder this guy? <laughs> And also, you notice that when she marks the pe- men off in the book, they're different color yes. marks. Yeah. So, like, does she? And there's like a ton of names in the book. There's like right. 200 names. Right. Yeah. So, um, I think that uh, it's it's uh, probably the most overtly entertaining of the uh, best picture nominees, and Carrie Mulligan is. Uh, She's the just... apparently the favorite in terms of odds. And what's interesting too about her casting is that. She's a very fine actress, but um, you think of her being in stuff like uh, Suffragette and uh, period, like, like proper movies, proper yeah. movies. And she's in this kind of, you know, outrageous genre mashup of a movie. It's like you, you, you think of Carrie Mulligan, you think of like 
Oscar nominee Carrie Mulligan is in <laughs> The Dig. And, you know, uh, she's in Shame, the very uh-huh. serious sex addiction film by Steve McVeigh. You know, you don't expect. But then again, she was in Drive. I mean, yes. that's one of, you know, but in general, I think people think of her as being a kind of proper actress in very serious roles. Well, but, education you know, is very much like that. Which is yeah, how she I really was like introduced to most of us. Oh, well, Pride and Prejudice was the first thing I saw her in. So right. another sort of literary adaptation. Yeah, it's like the, I, I think she's like the. It's like the way Eddie Redmayne. You think of him as being <laughs> yeah, sort of know. the female Eddie Redmayne. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I see. Like, I wish people like Eddie Redmayne would like do a Harmony Corinne movie. You mm-hmm. know, just like just completely throw themselves into a crazy. Well, he could use a Lord a little sort of uh self-awareness i think yeah. eddie redmayne which i, I do give likes. him credit for being in the wachowski's jupiter ascending which is like a not a good film but he kind of gives a kind of nutty scene chewing performance in that one from eddie redmayne yeah <laughs> but uh i just like the idea of uh and like viola davis is incredible but i wish she would be um you know and she, i mean she's, well, like she's in, in the suicide squad is sort of that her doing that letting her hair down yeah um, but yeah, it, it's like, but I, I love the idea. I, I thought the greatest casting, I would love to see Viola Davis in a Todd Solon's movie, like in a really mm-hmm. dark comedy where she's being very serious, but it's very funny. We don't get to but, see her be funny very often. No. And it, it's not like, oh, like she couldn't be funny, but she's often playing. Like yeah, widows if, sort of roles that are very serious showing yeah, off even, her. Yeah. Even if the movies are not like Oscar Beatty and super serious prestige films like Widows, she's still very serious. And also <laughs> like uh, she was in Michael Mann's last film, Black Hat, which uh-huh. is like a you know cool action movie. But she's like a very serious character. Even in, in uh, even, Suicide Squad, she's like the one who doesn't make jokes. <laughs> right. Right. I don't know that she, uh, you know, you, yeah, you stay far fun. away from the DC movies. Yeah, but I do I do think Carrie Mulligan uh, is really tremendous in this film. She really, uh, you know, and, and the cast is so good. I mean, Bo Burn- Burnham's really, good. really, really good. Alison Brie's great as sort of like a ditzy sort of drinks too much housewife. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go into it knowing as little as possible, especially don't let I was irritated. Did you uh, Bill Marg had this? Some of it was funny, this bit on the end of his last episode, and he gave away the ending of the movie. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, it's like it's not like this is like the usual suspects that came out 20 years ago. Like this is most people probably won't have seen this. Right. But um, so it it is uh, available on Blu-ray and DVD and streaming and it's playing still in a number of theaters. Yes, I saw it this weekend. And it was Uh, at twenty dollars for renting on demand. But that price is since lowered to, I think, four ninety nine or something like that. Right. Much more affordable. One nitpick I have about it is. That it's set, it's clearly set in Ohio, but it's also clearly shot in Los Angeles. Like the high school he picks up the girl from is not any sort of high school you would ever see in Ohio. You've got these palm trees everywhere. You've got these mountains in the background. It's like, is this supposed to be Cleveland? (laughs) So I just, I don't understand why they didn't just set it in California. I think, I think that would have made more sense. And that's something that, you know. That's obviously has nothing to do with the quality of the movie, but that's just a nitpick. Right. Okay, so, so the, next the next one is, I think, second on Best Atrocides. No, third. Viola Davis is second, but is very much the favorite for Best Picture, you would say. And almost certainly will win Best uh, Director. Yes, Nomadland is the film uh, directed by Chloe Zhao. Which certainly, done. which should say, connecting it to our last statement, this certainly is... Uh, 
it knows you know its locations and it, yes. it feels very much <laughs> yeah. uh, you know feels real and like you don't feel like you're in the sort wrong of alternate place. movie world <laughs> right yeah uh also directed songs my brother taught me in the rider which you like very much uh starring yeah. francis mcdormand and david strathairn and a lot of sort of nomad people playing versions of themselves um I don't know. What's the woman's name? Mankey or something? Yeah, well, what's I think the woman's like Sookie or something like that. Um, Frances <laughs> okay. McDormand plays a woman who leaves her hometown of Empire, Nevada after her husband dies and the sort of soul industry in the town closes down and she becomes a houseless person who travels around the western U.S. in a mobile home. More like a van, actually, with a bed in it. Uh, <laughs> while supporting herself doing seasonal jobs in different towns. Or national parks, and notably Amazon, which apparently this was like the first movie to shoot inside an Amazon fulfillment center, which I found surprising. Um, premiered at the Venice Film Festival, September 11th, 2020. A wide release, February 19th, 2021. And pretty much universal acclaim, 93 on Metacritic, 94 on Rotten Tomatoes. I think the lowest score on Metacritic I saw for critical reaction was like a 60. So there was no bad reviews of this movie that I could find on the internet. But you will break that by <laughs> giving it a fifty. <laughs> More than anything, I mean, obviously, the purpose of a movie is not necessarily to entertain you. There are a lot of great movies that are not entertaining, but this movie to me was unremittingly boring. And I was the first movie I saw in a theater since Tenet, which was like six months without shooting a movie in a theater. And I don't know if it was seeing expectations movie, seeing a movie. movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, I don't know if my expectations were too high, uh, but I found this incredibly, incredibly boring. And that's not to say that there weren't, it wasn't a good movie and that there weren't good pro- moments in it. And the performances of the lead actors were not good, but um, I just did not get what the hype was about. I think you liked it significantly more than I did, but I think you right. mentioned you preferred the writer, which was her previous movie uh, right. to this one. Yeah, I thought the I saw the writer at the New York Film Festival and got to see her interviewed afterwards. And that movie is even better, I think. Uh, I, not like a huge difference in quality, but I I thought the writer was just a really beautiful movie. It's a film about a man who has a a really bad injury and he wants to continue riding horses. And it's just uh, that film basically. Uh, just about everyone in that movie is playing a version of themselves, mm-hmm. a fictionalized version of themselves, and almost everyone in Nomadland is Nomadland well, yeah. is except uh, Francis McDormand and David Strathairn. And interestingly, did you know that David Strathairn's real son is playing his son in the film? Oh, really? Yeah, I was. It was good casting. I was like, this guy definitely looks like his son. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, makes sense. I th- I, I I don't. This isn't like a movie where I saw it and afterwards was like, oh, this is the number one film of the year. But I thought it was really beautifully made. And it's I I mean, it wasn't exciting, but I just found it so soulful. It was very human. And and it makes you very empathetic for these people's situations, which ultimately is the point of the movie. And I also think one of the things the film does really well is that it doesn't say either that these people are, you know, like aspirational. We should aspire to these people's way of life or anything. Or, or that they're crazy and yeah. they're mentally ill and like it's it's how could they do this? It's like <laughs> it, it just presents this lifestyle and it lets you, you know, experience, you know, what they go through. 
And yeah, it's, it is pretty heavy. I mean, it's like people are, you know, have a lot of people have died or they're going to die. And there's just, it. I mean, I could never live anywhere, like do anything close to living like this. Oh, no. Like, <laughs> it seems so dirty. I mean, yeah. But, but, but the, it, what's interesting too is the film doesn't explain, like, this is why Fern does this. Like, it gives you hints at her mindset and where her life has been. And it's just a portrait of a woman. And I think one disagreement we have is that I think Frances McDormand is like perfectly cast in the film. Mm -hmm. And I think she completely fits into the film. And so does David Strathairn. You felt like it was a big movie star in the lead. And if they'd cast a non-actor or someone who is not nearly as big a star, but I think that her not star presence, but just her, her acting, acting ability it make it just it you just completely it she she makes the film like it, what is I a mean, difficult it, role because she's that, in like every scene of the movie right and it's not that like i said that it's this star performance where she's like oh i'm gonna give an acting performance and i'm yeah. so great it's like she her, just the the lines on her face and the history of her it's just the, there's a weight to the performance that i feel yeah. like if it was a non-actor or someone you didn't really know you would have it wouldn't have had the same weight. They couldn't carry it as well. Also, probably. Yeah. And I mean, it. I mean, you have to agree. It's not like I was I mean, I don't mean to shit on someone specifically, but like <laughs> if Kate Hudson had been in the role, it's like you would have gone, oh, my gosh, it's Kate Hudson. You know, but Francis Reese Witherspoon is like I don't. <laughs> but I thought she did a really good job in Wild. Wild. I don't I couldn't imagine anyone better than Francis McDormand if they were going to cast. Yes. A famous actor. No, I agree with you that. You agree with that? Because she yeah. is really good at playing the sort of like. Because it's not like she's like classically gorgeous, like a Nicole Kidman or something like that. She does just sort of look like a normal person, uh, especially and with she her. Said before, and she said in interviews, she's spoken about how she has gone to Hollywood parties and seen people with facelifts. And uh -huh. Joel Cohen, her husband, has to like hold her back to have her not say like, why'd you do that to yourself? Oh, and really? Like, why can't you age <laughs> like she, she, well, she seems somewhat like a fish out of water in the sort of Hollywood thing. Like she doesn't sort of oh, yeah, seek like, out the big major roles. It sort of just comes to her, but she continually gets nominated for best actress despite that. Yeah. I mean, three billboards, she did zero campaigning uh -huh. and she still won. It's yeah. like, there's uh, I mean, and it's, it's very likely she's going to win an Oscar. If not for best actress, she's one of the producers of the yeah, film and if it wins best picture. Um, so in this, she'll be in a very small, I mean, Catherine Hepburn won, uh, best actress four times. Has there been any actress that's won three times? I know Daniel Day-Lewis won, won three like, times. Um, she's definitely she's won, won multiple. Didn't she win supporting actress for Kramer versus Kramer? She's won three. I'm not sure, but, um, she's won two, uh, Frances McDormand's won two lead actor Oscar. That's for Fargo Oscars. and for three billboards. Right. She was not, wasn't she not, was she nominated for supporting actress for Almost Famous and for North Country? I don't know how many, she's been nominated many times, but she doesn't work like a ton. She's kind of no, selective she about what she does. It's like randomly, like you look at her IMDb, she's like randomly in a Transformers movie. Oh yeah, she she's... plays like a government agent person. <laughs> right. But I mean, you agree that she is absolutely one of her great greatest living actresses uh, yes but in a much more sort of understated way than a, a meryl streeper and nicole kidman who what do, so the, yeah i was going to say that the, um 
you know, you were kind of disappointed in the movie, but what did you find the most effective about? Were there scenes or images? Uh, what did you find? The, the scene where the guy who sort of like runs the nomad camp, um, him and Francis McDormand's Fern character have like a conversation by like a fire. It's sort of like those moments, like where it's just sort of talking about like their experiences. And I'm not sure if th- that's sort of one of my issues with the movie is the blurring of reality and fiction with the people playing themselves. Like, for example, one of the characters has a brain tumor. And that's a big part of the, her storyline is like, uh, you know, getting the most out of life while she still has time left. But like the actor herself is still alive. So stuff like that, I sort of have a, sort of a hard time with Chloe Zhao's version of realism in that sort of aspect. But that's like obviously like a key part of her style of realism is like the people sort of playing versions of themselves. So uh I don't know if I'm just not on the same wavelength as her but and stuff like that. But, like, for example, that guy, like, talks about his son's suicide. And I'm like, did that really happen? Or are you just sort of manipulating me again with these sort of fictional stories of real people? But they all give really good performances of these fictional versions of themselves. And those sort of moments I found to be uh, the most affecting. I thought that the sort of romance storyline between David Strathairn and Francis McDormand was sort of the weakest part of it. I didn't even really understand why it was necessary to have in the movie, aside from being sort of like the thing that would take her away from this lifestyle. But you also get that with her sister character. Um, Well, I think the reason is that, you know, she is very hesitant to have any kind of relationship, you know, being. Yeah. And I think that's a, a major part of the character development is her hesitancy to be attached to any place or person uh-huh. or thing besides her own band. And I think that, um, you know, go, you're talking about the people. Like, it didn't really bother me that you weren't sure uh, if this was really true of, like, how much of this is uh, a fictional cre- – you know, because, that I mean, to me, that's what's so masterful about the film is that it feels so real that – I mean, I saw in an interview, I read it was reading that the one of the people she was talking to – uh, Frances McDormand's character is mm-hmm. a widow and she's talking about her husband dying of cancer. And, um, after the scene was over, um, the, uh, person, the real person was going up to Frances McDormand and said, I'm, I'm so sorry you lost your husband. He's like, Oh, and she didn't even realize Frances McDormand was an actress. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she said, Oh, actually my husband's a big time director. Joel she's like, Cohen. no, <laughs> and I, I'm just really good at acting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you could say like, are they manipulating these people and like lying to them, you know, and going out and you know, yeah. But I mean, I, I, but it's like, I, that, to me, it's well, like obviously, a, it I, doesn't come from like a bad place. It's not like they're like, you know, exploiting these jackass, people. yeah, exactly, and pranking them, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, right. and they do treat them extremely empathetically. Would like just from like seeing some of these people, you'd be like, oh, that person, I, you know, I wouldn't stick around them because they've got like, you know, missing teeth or dress shabbily or stuff like that so it makes you really understand these people and like understand their way of life um so i mean it is effective but i don't know i just maybe i'd I'd, her version of realism it seems like it would work for something like the writer because everyone is playing fictional versions of themselves but i mean francis mcdormand is so good that it sort of makes you forget but it's just sort of a weird style of realism when you have recognizable actors in it but right. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if uh, you go and watch the writer, how you respond to that. Yeah. I think you would really like it. Um, but uh, so we pretty much agree on Ma Rainey and Promising Young Woman. 
uh, and next time we talk, we'll do one about some of the best actor mm -hmm. nominees. But uh, you still need to catch up with some. I need to still catch up mm -hmm. with some. I'll say if I cram in the men from what I've seen. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say that if I were just completely picking from what I've seen from last year or the films that are in consideration, mm -hmm. my five best actress nominees would be Viola Davis for Ma Rainey, mm -hmm. Gary Mulligan for uh, Promised Young Woman, mm -hmm. Frances McDormand for Nomadland, Jesse Buckley for I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and the actress from Never Rarely, uh, all, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, mm -hmm. who um, I can't remember her name. Did but, that get nominated uh, for anything? No, and it should have. Damn it! It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, the the, um, the actress who starred in which you you really still need to see First Cow. Yes, and never really. Her <laughs> name is Sydney Flanagan. It was an endless list of the movies that I need to see. <laughs> well, you're you're ju you're just sexist because you won't see two it's films directed by women. It's true. You know, but <laughs> well, you know, well, today we're being very diverse because it was filmed by two women and one African American. So true. you know, we're hitting all the quotas. We have an Asian American. Yeah. Chloe Zhao. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, this will be the second time ever that a woman wins Best Director. Chloe Zhao wins. And uh, it will be the, it's the first year ever that two, more than one uh, woman nominated for Best Director. Isn't there only one previous woman, which is uh, Catherine Bigelow for Zero Dark Thirty? Right. Which she won. No. Who no. else? Who else? No. No, for The Hurt Locker. Oh, The Hurt Locker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. But okay, here's trivia. Who are the other <laughs> Was she nominated women? for Zero Dark Thirty? Probably no, she not. wasn't. That was the year it was crazy. She wasn't nominated and Ben Affleck wasn't nominated for Argo. Which one best and, picture? Like, ben, ben Zeitlin was nominated for uh, Beast of the Southern, of the Southern Wild. Wild. That had its moment. That really did. Yeah. Um and then he didn't direct a movie until Wendy, which nobody saw last year, which is but anyway, I was gonna say, what are the other four women nominated before this most recent? So Catherine Bigelow won for The Hurt Locker. There were more I, than I know that? the answer. I'm asking. I'm testing you. Do you. Can you give me the years or the decade? I'll give you a hint. The first one was a foreign language nominee, a foreign language film, and this woman won uh, was won an honorary Oscar just recently. Oh, was it Agnes Varda? No. Oh, I don't know. Lena Wertmuller. Lena Wertmuller for Seven Beauties. Okay. Uh, Never heard second, of it. Second... <laughs> The second one, one she won for best screenplay and, and won best actor and uh, supporting actress. And the supporting actress was extremely young. Ooh, was it the piano? The piano. Yes, Jane um, Campion. The, yeah, the next one. I love is the piano. The daughter of a very famous director. Oh, it's uh, yeah, Sofia Coppola. For which one? Is that for Lost in Translation? Right, and, uh, oh, and then yeah. the more than I uh, fifth one. Uh, and then uh, fourth is Hurt Locker. And then the fifth one uh, was an actress's first solo directorial debut. Oh, I don't know. Give you me said. that one. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, I'll give you another hint. It is. Um, I don't know. What hint should I give? <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's a comedy. It's very lovely portrait of a teenage girl. Lady Bird. Lady, oh, Greta Gerwig. I'm an idiot. That was not right. that long ago. Yeah. <laughs> That's like 2016. Right. So there she wasn't nominated like 90... for uh, Little Women, was she? No, no, she wasn't. Oh, that's surprising. So she... there's only been seven women ever nominated for Best Act, uh, for Best Director, and two, and two of, of them, them were this year. year. And, one, and one of them is almost yeah. definitely going to win. Right. 
Yeah. So um, we really we we should say with everything uh, we're talking about with the Oscars, like it's a big caveat that we're a lot of films we still haven't yes. seen. We I've haven't seen uh, the U.S. My... versus Billy Holiday, which won at the Golden Globes for Andrea Day. Is that the name of the woman? Yeah, her her acting debut. And the other and, one is Vanessa um, Kirby. And for pieces of a woman which yeah. apparently is like shattering emotionally <laughs> i kind of right. don't want to watch that movie <laughs> no but yeah like i would i mean if i were an actual academy voter i would never vote in a category unless i had seen all the nominees oh i, I know but that. i think you'd be surprised how many people vote who haven't seen like even 50 percent of the nominees oh. I also think people sometimes vote for films they haven't even seen. Like, uh, I know that one thing is that, you know, Glenn Close was, you know, the front runner to win for The Wife. Yes. And I heard people t- predicting the Oscars saying that they think that a lot of people just didn't watch the movie and they uh, d- they didn't vote for it possibly because they never got around. Because I think that was the only nomination the film got. And yeah. people are sexist and they said the theory that people, guys especially, didn't want to watch a movie called The Wife. It's like, I have to deal with that 24-7. Why do I want to watch it in a movie theater? <laughs> but, uh that was yeah. one that was like only on planes for a certain period, from what I remember. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but that was one that I had heard <laughs> I saw like, it <laughs> that like most people who saw that saw it on a plane. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I know this I know is, of some this people. This is really did. this is really funny. My mom went on a trip um, a few years ago. Well, this is like seven or eight years ago now, and um, we were in the movie theater in Atlanta, and we were we saw the Babadook together, mm-hmm. and like ten minutes in the movie, she's like. Oh yeah, I saw this on the plane. And I was like, you couldn't remember a movie called The Babadook? Like that's kind of a standout <laughs> title, you know. She's like, uh, and you know, but yeah, it's it's like for a while the only way you could legally watch Woody Allen's film A Rainy Day in New York is if you saw it on a plane. <laughs> you know, was it a specific it airline? <laughs> yeah, it's like buy a plane ticket and go see a movie on a plane. <laughs> the most expensive movie ticket of all time. I know, but um, yeah. So uh, we're really glad that movie theaters are back open. Yes. Uh, okay. Here's a question: If you were going to go see one of these movies in a theater, I would say Nomadland's the main one to see, even though it's the one you like the least. It's the one that should be seen. I think it would have in a theater. I think. I think it would. I think people would find it extremely boring if you were to watch it at home. I think it would be. You would be very yeah. quick to check your phone in the first sort of ten minutes of Nomadland. If you aren't in a theater and you need to give your, but you're just being a dumb, I know, but you're being a dumb caveman about the movie. Most people I think are really swept up into it and they just like, they get on the film's wavelength. (laughs) No offense. Give me entertainment. Give me entertainment. (laughs) But no, I think, I I, I think promising young woman, it is engrossing. And I think a theater makes it more engrossing than it would be at home where you have all these distractions. And I think that's the one that would have the biggest drop off, not seeing it in a theater but i mean th- i mean it's available on hulu for anyone who has that and doesn't want to go to a movie theater to see nomadland um and it is worth seeing it's i mean even just for the fact that it's probably going to win best picture and chloe Zhao seems like she will be one of the more important directors going forward i mean i'd be surprised if she wasn't she has a major marvel movie coming out and then has what seems like it's going to be a pretty mainstream movie with this sort of vampire western that was announced a few weeks ago or a few months ago but I don't I recommend all of them. I think they're all, you know, worthwhile, <laughs> deserve to be nominated movies. Um, there, and- t- there are times that there have been Oscar nominees that I'm like, that, like, I honestly, like, to me, the Borat sequel is not worth seeing. Like, it's a waste of time. Well, it's, I, I don't know if it's worth seeing now. I thought it, it before the election it at least had some timeliness, which 
it really doesn't have anymore. Um, yeah, just because a film's Oscar nominated doesn't mean like, oh, you have to watch. It. Like, I don't have any desire oh, yeah. to watch Hillbilly LG. <laughs> well, no, like there are a lot of others that are that, but you know, Nomadland is probably the best reviewed movie of last year, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Oh yeah, the the Metacritic has the thing where they have uh, they compile the top ten list, and it has by a large margin, yeah, the highest rated. Uh, so of yeah, the film. don't first listen to me. <laughs> don't listen to me. I was the person who seems to have liked it the least out of anyone who saw it, and I still thought it was a good movie and worthwhile. And uh, yeah, I was I was going to real quick the top ten from what they do on Metacritic is they compile the top ten list and they give a film three points if it's number one, two points if it's number two, and if it's somewhere else on the top ten list they give oh it one the point. sort of year end list that people give. Yeah, so the top ten are number ten David Byrne's American Utopia, Spike Lee's uh-huh. concert film, nine Sound of Metal, eight Promising Young Woman, uh-huh. seven I'm Thinking of Ending Things, six Minari. Five to Five Bloods, so two Spike Lee films wow. in the top ten. Four, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Three, Lovers Rock, the Steve well, yes. part of the, uh, which the was Steve McQueen Smart. kind of television. <laughs> two, First Cow, and one, Nomad Land. Oh wow! Yeah, so a no, lot of that uh, top ten was relatively shut out at the Oscars. Like the Five Bloods was only score. Is that right? Sometimes right. really, and never always. Things, never rarely. First yeah. cow. I don't think this. I don't. Steve McQueen's small axe was eligible. Um, yeah, and uh, so uh, the second film, uh, First Cow, has 175 points. Nomadland has 220 points. So that's a big lead. Yeah. So you know the the thing that's th- a number of times in recent years, from that Metacritic list, the f- number one film actually won Best Picture. The Hurt Locker, mm-hmm. Moonlight, um, Parasite. Like, mm-hmm. the Oscars have actually gotten it right a number of times in recent years. Green Book was not one of them. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think No Country for Old was the best film that year. Yeah. Um, that, well, that was like uh, an Spot- extraordinary year with There Will Be Blood and Michael Clayton and Atonement. Yeah. Anyway, so let's just uh, <laughs> tease the next episode. We'll be talking about The Father, Minari, mm-hmm. Sound of Metal. Mm-hmm. Yes, best yeah, actor. Yeah, two of those are, all three of those are best picture nominees. Also, also, right? Correct. Yeah. So there you go. Perfect way to end that. The best actress yeah. this time, best actor next time. The Oscars are coming up. Uh, thank you for listening. We will be back with y'all next time.